It's time for OWC Radio, Tech Talk with Creatives, Conversations with host Serena Catania. This is Serena Catania with OWC Radio. And before we start today, I want to remind you guys that OWC delivers amazing tailored workflow solutions for every tech user. They have storage, connectivity, software, expansion products, and 24-7 U.S.-based technical support. And that's true. I can call OWC 24-7 and I get a human being on the line. And I love that. Their slogan is that they believe in making a better world where technology inspires imagination and everything is possible. And I'm so grateful to them for sponsoring OWC Radio. So if you're looking for a workflow solution, if you're looking for hardware, software, any kind of tech, go to maxsales.com. And now for our featured guest of the day, drum roll, please. Patrick Southern. I have been watching Patrick for over seven years now since he moved to Los Angeles from Oklahoma. And I have to tell you, I'm so happy to talk to you, Patrick, because you are truly a really success story. You are the epitome (laughs) of what happens when somebody works hard, is amazing at what they do, and has a great attitude. I remember, and I don't think I've ever told you this, I remember turning around to Philip Hodgetts and Gregory Clark at one of our events. And I said to them, you just wait, this guy is going to be a superstar. And now that I've totally embarrassed you, (laughs) say hello. (laughs) (laughs) Serena, thank you so much for having me on the, the show today. I really appreciate it. You know, I'm recalling some of those presentations that we were doing together at the Apple store in Santa Monica and oh some of those early, yeah. I you remember that <laughs> forever ago. It feels like, yeah, I know. I know. And then you went to, you went to LumaForge. Tell us about the LumaForge journey. Well, actually let's start before that, because sure. I think when, when I first met you during the Lapsy Pug meetings, you were part of Stump the Guru, and you were talking about the O.J. Simpson film, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, back in 2015, I, I was a part of two separate O.J. Simpson documentaries, one for A&E and the other for the Lifetime Movie Network. Both were two hours long, and I, I was the assistant editor. And they were both cut in Final Cut Pro Ten. And so being that there hadn't been that many feature-length documentaries made in Final Cut Pro 10 that had been documented, you know, so that people could share workflows uh, widely with people. I tried to do the best that I could to document the workflow that we had on those two projects and uh, ended up doing some articles on scp.co along with uh, a number of talks here and there about what we had done. And I'm I'm sure you uh, remember this bit. It was the first uh, documentary to use transcript mode in Lumberjack, which has since been superseded by Builder. But mm-hmm. uh, to that point, there wasn't really a great way to work with transcripts inside of Final Cut Pro 10. And since we were working with, you know, 30 or 40 deposition tapes from the O.J. Simpson civil case, mm-hmm. it was pretty important that we be able to browse through those transcripts, find the stuff that we needed to cut in and then cut it in. And at that moment in time, we had to do a paper cut up front, and then I would go through, find the, the parts of the deposition tapes that matched the uh, paper cut that our um, director had created, you know, related to uh, that part of the, the uh, paper cut, and I would assemble a timeline, which ended up taking, you know, uh, at least 
four to eight hours per scene, if you can call it a scene within the documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, after having done that process, uh, we could start cutting in B-roll and that sort of a thing. But years later, Lumberjack came out with Lumberjack Builder, which now gives you the capability to go through and do a paper cut within the Builder application and that will then create a final cut timeline for you, which is significantly better than the workflow that I'd asked for at the time back in 2015. But, um, you know, the workflow we had back in 2015 was still better than uh, the workflow we'd had previously, which was just having to try to find that line within the, within the transcript, uh, maybe based on time code, or uh, if we weren't lucky enough to have time codes, then it was just hunting, pecking, and searching. Because this was a lot of historical material, and didn't you find some things that nobody had ever heard before? Well, you know, I, I wouldn't say that nobody had ever heard before. Definitely the, the jury in the civil case had the opportunity to hear some of it, as did the, uh, the lawyers and the judges involved in the civil case. Mm-hmm. And the tapes had been largely locked away over the last however many years. I think it was 20 years at the time. That's what I'm remembering. It's now closer to 25 years. Yeah, that's what I'm remembering, that these were tapes that you guys somehow unearthed from the vaults, and the public, the general public, had never heard some of this stuff. Right. That's pretty amazing. That's largely largely the case. Yeah, there were a few of the tapes, like two or three of the tapes that had been um, available to media over the years. So there had been a number of specials and whatnot that had grabbed some of the, the tapes. But I do remember specifically coming across a moment in his deposition that I, I know that I definitely had not seen ever. And I don't know if anybody else had ever seen where he was asked about his uh, Bruno Molly shoes. And there was a photograph of him wearing those Bruno Molly shoes on an NFL football field uh, while he was working as some sort of a sportscaster at the time. And uh, he's handed the photo and the look in his eyes, not just the look in his eyes, his eyes got just about as, as wide as a human eye can possibly get before the, the eye pops out, you know. Wow. It's just his eyes go super wide and you can see, you know, the gear spinning in his head and, and uh, a number of seconds pass and he finally says, oh, well, you know, uh, you know, the majority of this is me. But, uh, the you know, uh, starting at the belt going down, I, I'm starting to think that this might be doctored. You know, this the, those aren't my pants and the, those are definitely not my shoes. And, you know, oh Serena, was, this was before the time of Photoshop. So, <laughs> you know. yeah, uh, I, I don't know how reliable the idea of that photo being doctored was at the time. Well, how did it feel to be working on a project that really has turned out to be very historic and won, and you've won some awards for these? Well, that, that project was a lot of hard work and it felt good because, you know, after we had completed the documentary, some footage that I had actually, I, <laughs> I was <laughs> the first person to digitize a lot of those tapes. And so Wow. Uh, there's a, this large archive that, that we'd had access to that not everybody had access to. So there was a team... Uh, creating a 30 for 30 documentary about O.J. Simpson, who reached out to the production company and ended up ended up using a lot of the footage. So that that felt pretty good for a more notable documentary about O.J. Simpson to use our footage. But that ended up parlaying into, for me, a job at 1895 Films for uh, the better part of a year, I think, where I went from being an assistant editor 
and slowly became an editor over time. Ended up cutting my first documentary television series while I was there, but also worked as an assistant editor on a documentary called The Challenger Disaster Lost Tapes. And uh, The Challenger Disaster Lost Tapes ended up winning mm-hmm. the team Emmys. So mm-hmm. I do I do have my own Emmy. It's sitting mm-hmm. in a box about four feet away from me right now. But uh, <laughs> I, I mm-hmm. had it on the shelf and then we rearranged our shelf. I might rearrange it again because it was kind of nice to have out visible. Oh, come on. You need to unpack that. Put it on the shelf. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, might, I might do that. Put that sucker out. <laughs> Yeah. You're so modest. You really are. There are a lot of assistant editors who wonder how to do their job better. Like, what do I do to be really, really good? And is there a chance that I will become an editor someday? Do you have some advice for assistant editors about what they can do really well that is important? Yeah. I mean, there are, there are a few keys to being an assistant editor. You know, I, I think number one is mastery of the technology, right? Mm-hmm. I've often, often the assistant editor is kind of being a, a technical editor more than someone who's assisting the the other editor. You could almost call it like a, a technical editor and mm-hmm. then a creative editor almost, right? Mm-hmm. But the assistant editor, whenever I was working as an AE, uh, the, the prime focus that I had was I need to make this footage shine and organized so well that the editor can find whatever shot that they're looking for or whatever tidbit or piece of interview uh, that they're looking for Mm -hmm. without having to spend a whole lot of time on it, right? The sooner they're able to find the footage, the faster we're able to get stuff into the timeline, the faster we get stuff into the timeline, Mm -hmm. the more time can be spent on refining the story. So being able to be a master of the technology is good. And it's okay too, though, to, to say, I don't know, or to say that I'm overwhelmed or I don't have enough bandwidth for a thing, because it's always better in my experience to set proper expectations up front than to overpromise and underdeliver. Boy, do I agree with that. <laughs> Please be honest. If you're looking for a job, people, be honest with what you know how to do. It's okay that you don't know how to do something. Just just don't you know, a lot of people say, yeah. well, I take the job and then I figure out how to do it. But as somebody that is currently actually looking for a new assistant editor, because I moved to San Diego, it's really frightening when you have a huge project and you're going to trust those media files to another human being who, if they don't know what they're doing, could screw the whole thing up. It's really scary from the other side looking in, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's it's invaluable to have a, a good assistant editor. You know, when I started on the O.J. Simpson documentaries, I'd never done television documentary. I knew Final Cut Pro 10 very well, but I didn't know how things were done in television. I didn't know how to turn over things to Pro Tools or to Resolve because I didn't have to do those things on, on the regular at the job I'd been at previous. So, you know, there was a lot of problem solving that had to go on, but mm-hmm. because I was already familiar with the tool itself, figuring out uh, the other pieces for me was relatively easy. I don't know if everyone is wired the same way, but I, I think that something that is also imperative is if you don't know something, uh, don't freak out about it and don't say that something is impossible to have been done. Take time, use your resources. That's Mm -hmm. something I I learned. I worked at an Apple store back in Tulsa. And one of the biggest things that they taught me was use your resources. You have the same resources available to you that everybody else at the store has, right? And so as assistant editors, 
you have access to the internet. You have access to other assistant editors. You have mm -hmm. access to the help menus of the application that you're working in. Oh, you know, come on. God Linda. forbid com. anybody would read the help menu. Oh, man. <laughs> I, you know, I used to, Serena, I used to sit down and read the help menu page for page uh, for Final Cut Pro Classic before Final Cut Pro 10 came out, um, just so that I could know how to use the application. Now, mind you, I, at the time I was going for a, a Final Cut certification, or that was like a dream of mine at the time. Mm -hmm. But there is, you know, they're written with the intent of being read, and they're they're great for review later on if you're trying to find, uh, you know, like a specific subject or topic. But, you know, it also does not hurt to read through at least the first couple of chapters of a help menu because uh, they'll oftentimes have, you know, overviews over the entire application and, and you know, go significantly beyond that. The other thing that I found, Serena, was the value of getting to know the various third-party vendors mm -hmm. in the Final Cut ecosystem. I mean, that's how I met uh, Philip and Greg was mm -hmm. through needing a thing, seeing a thing that they were already doing and wondering to myself, well, I wonder if that can be parlayed into this transcript thing. And I reached out and said, hey, Philip and Greg, do you think we can do this thing? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, Philip's initial response was, well, no, I don't think so. And then they sat on it for a little bit and Greg came back a couple of days later and said, well, I think I've figured out a way that we can do this. <laughs> you know? Knowing your resources, I think, is extremely important when when working as as an assistant mm -hmm. editor and not giving up when a problem becomes difficult. So now that you're editing, when you're interviewing assistant editors, what kind of questions do you ask them? What do you expect mm -hmm. from them? I'll be honest, I don't do a whole lot of interviewing of assistant editors ahead of time, mm -hmm. usually. What my experience has been is going to things like the Creative Summit and going to Lossy Pug and being part of the internet community, I get to know people over time. Mm -hmm. uh, so normally I don't have just a slew of questions because I've gotten to know this person over time and I've talked, you know, editing nerdery <laughs> over time with them and sussed them out that way. But the things that I look for are the ability to face a problem and not if you can find a problem and you don't bring it to your editor and say, hey, uh, how do I do this every single time, right? Or, mm -hmm. hey, we've run into this, so I can't do this thing that you wanted me to do. Mm -hmm. If you find uh, creative ways to solve the problem before coming to me to solve your problem, that's a big you know, check in the box mm -hmm. for the fact that my job as the editor now is to be focused on the story and getting those sorts of things taken care of. So if you're coming to me asking the technical advice, then, and I always thought that this sounded so snobby and, you know, nose in the air back in the day. But the truth of the matter is that when you're an editor and an assistant editor comes to you, asks you all the technical questions, now instead of focusing on your job, you're helping them do their job when their job is to help you do your job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, it is. Um, Absolutely. And, and so what I would say is if you're an assistant editor and you're wanting to go far, I would say be proactive about finding ways to solve problems uh, without having to involve your editor up 
front. Mm -hmm. If you've tried multiple different troubleshooting steps or you've looked through your resources and you still can't figure it out, by all means, go to somebody who who has more experience in that area. Oftentimes, editors don't have experience in those areas, right? Because uh, they've been focused on the creative so long that they've forgotten the technical. Mm-hmm. That's the thing, again, that I look for is is somebody who is technically competent and who is proactive about finding solutions to problems. And organized. They have to be organized. Yeah. Someone who's organized. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And somebody who is eager to learn, mm-hmm. you know, because that eagerness can turn into opportunity to uh, potentially help with assembling scenes if necessary, or it can turn into, you know, adding sound effects, or it can turn into solving problems in a way that I would never have thought to have solved the problem. So that ability to creatively approach things, an eagerness to learn, and the ability to use the resources before before coming to me immediately, because I, I have worked with people in the past who their first reaction is to come to me and ask me how to do a thing as opposed to uh, taking, you know, even five minutes to think about it for themselves. Right. Taking some initiative. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So those are kind of the things that I look for in an assistant editor. So Patrick, right now you are, you have an amazing new position as workflow architect at Frame.io. I do, yeah. Which we're going to talk about in a minute. I'm so excited about that for you. Prior to that, you were at LumaForge, which is another wonderful company. So can you talk about the transition to LumaForge and what you were doing there and then how you got to Frame.io and what you're doing there? Yeah, absolutely. So LumaForge makes this crazy cool thing called the jellyfish. And when I was working on the O.J. Simpson documentaries, Chuck Braverman and I, uh, he was the executive producer of the show, Chuck was. Uh, he and I both met up with Sam Messman, and Sam showed us both at separate times and <laughs> <laughs> unknown to each other. We didn't, we didn't know that we both had meetings so to Sam funny. Uh, one day after the other, actually. That's very funny. And, <laughs> and uh, Sam showed us this box with some tinfoil on the top and... Uh, <laughs> showed us multiple computers connected to that box and they were all sharing footage and they were all playing multiple cameras simultaneously inside of Final Cut Pro 10 in the multicam. So Chuck and I determined that, oh, you know what? We need this thing for uh, the show that we're working on. And at the time, the Jellyfish was not actually a product. It was just kind of a proof of concept that LumaForge had at an office in West Los Angeles, almost Culver City, I think, any case, uh, we ended up getting the very first jellyfish ever. I didn't uh, know that on our show. I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah. Huh? Jellyfish serial number Surprise. one. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and it was probably it was about a year and a half after that the TV series that I had been cutting at eighteen ninety five. Uh, the the first season was done cutting. And they didn't have any other shows for me to jump on at the time. And instead of taking a pause in my work, I determined that, you know, I wanted to find something stable just to to be able to pay the bills for a little bit before going back out into the freelance world. And so I called up Sam and I said, hey, Sam, you know, um, mm-hmm. you guys at LumaForge do some pretty amazing stuff. Uh, by that point, I had already done a number of trade shows with them just as kind of like a, a friend of the company who uh, came in to help pitch the product because I'd been the first person to use it. 
And so Sam offered me kind of a contract position. Mm -hmm. And then about a month and a half later, it became a full-time position. And we didn't know what I was going to do at the company necessarily. It was just a startup that had, you know, six people. And we kind of all did a little bit of everything. And uh, over time, it went from being a temporary job to being a long-term job. And I was there for almost three years. Mm -hmm. Ended up working with... uh, with some partners wow. to put together some pretty amazing events. I think probably my two proudest achievements were our team getting to put together the Faster Together stage mm-hmm. for three years in a row at NAB. Mm-hmm. You know, two out of those were awesome events. Yeah, two out of the three of those uh, had around 30 people. And then the last one, I think it was like eight sessions but was uh, filling in the, the spot of the super meet that year. So being able to, <laughs> with no experience having done this, mind you, uh, being able to go in and create an event at NAB that became expected and became uh, kind of a staple for a number of people uh, was, was pretty exciting and, and uh, something I'm very proud that we were able to do as a team. Around the end of 2018, I got a text message from James Heck, and he told me that there was a new uh, Black Magic Raw codec that had uh, hit that day. And uh, my realization was, oh, we should probably do a video about this. Mm-hmm. This sounds pretty cool. And so Raybard Schinner and I uh, took the LumaForge, uh, LumaForge's Blackmagic Ursa Mini Pro and downloaded the firmware that uh, enabled Blackmagic RAW recording. And we went out and shot some test footage, came back to the office, shot a talking head. Your talking head, by the way, for those who don't know, it was your talking head. And my head was talking. That is correct. <laughs> and um, we we did a couple of these up front. And uh you know, the first one, I think, got something like ten to 20,000 views or something along those lines uh, very quickly. And so we determined uh, it's probably a good idea to keep doing these sorts of things. So started actually doing a series called Edit Bay A for LumaForge. And over basically the next year, the, the majority of the next year, we continued doing those. And I think we had something like 25 of them by the, the end of my time at uh, LumaForge. But Framio took notice. And uh, <laughs> Emory mm-hmm. around NAB of this year uh, asked me, well, do you know of anybody like you who can do the sorts of things that you're doing, but for Frame.io, and I mentioned a few names, and he was like, oh, well, yeah, I've already talked to those guys. <laughs> well, okay, well, th- thanks thanks for trying to help me out. <laughs> and so we kind of circled back around that conversation. He was in town, I don't know, it was June or July or something, and uh, we decided to go grab some tacos, and the subject came back up, and I finally asked, well, were you looking for just anybody to do that? Or were you looking specifically for me? And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then he admitted it, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, rem- I don't remember his exact response, but by the end of our meal, we were talking about me going through an interview process and seeing if frame IO was the right match. You know, it, it was an opportunity to continue doing the sorts of things that I was doing for LumaForge, a company that I still very much love and mm-hmm. still very much support. Well, you're always going to be part of that family, Patrick. You know, yeah. I, I remember the good old days going to that first office 
in that it was like a warehouse type of building. And all of you remember the kind of like the finished gray <laughs> cement floor and the dog running around and, and people in the yeah. front and all the equipment being being built in the back, literally being built in the back of the office. Anyway, so yeah, yeah so you're always going to be a part of that family. They they love yeah, you. Yeah, I, I, I love them too. Some of my good friends over there. You know, I can't imagine people listening don't know what Frame.io is, but can you explain to our listeners what Frame.io is and what they do? Yeah, so Frame.io started, oh, I, I don't know, it was, it was something like four years ago, I want to say. But originally, it was just a review and approval system with an integration for Final Cut Pro 10. That was kind of where it started. So what that means is, it, you know, you finish your edit and instead of uploading mm -hmm. to Dropbox or to Vimeo or wherever and getting uh, an email with time-coded notes back later, uh, Frame.io was akin to some of our competitors, uh, a tool that allowed you to upload your footage or upload your timeline directly to Frame.io mm -hmm. and you could give time-accurate comments, right? So you could watch through, find a spot that you thought mm -hmm. needed a change and you could start typing and it would set a timestamp comment in that place. Because of the integration with Final Cut, you could actually export your timeline and it would either upload the entire timeline or it would actually upload the individual clips of that timeline to Frame.io. So you could export your timeline, upload it, you could get comments back. And then I don't remember if it was immediately or if it was soon thereafter, Frame.io started adding the ability to import those comments into Final Cut Pro 10 as a compound clip, uh, or was it a generator, uh, with markers on top, and the markers were the comments. So Frameo now has uh, integrations in Final Cut inside of Premiere, inside of Resolve, mm -hmm. that allow you to synchronize the playback in the cloud with your timeline inside of your editing software. So if you're in Final Cut Premiere or Resolve, you can actually... Uh, playback the file in, in Premiere and Final Cut, it's a panel or workflow extension that lives inside the application. Or in Resolve, Frame.io is actually built into Resolve. They use our API to <laughs> um, actually add our functionality into the application. So comments actually come directly into your timeline as markers inside of Resolve. That makes life so much easier, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. So you've got those integrations. You've got the ability to upload bins or individual files. Uh, you can download full resolution originals or proxies of dailies inside of Frame.io now. So you can manage like an online offline workflow using Frame.io. You're also able to pass back and forth Premiere projects or Final Cut Pro XML. So if you're wanting to exchange, you know, maybe I've logged this set of 10 or 20 clips. I can send over an FCP XML through uh, Frame.io along with the clips, and that can be pulled down on the other side. And I believe you've got the ability to drag from Final Cut into the, the workflow extension inside of Final Cut, mm -hmm. and it will automatically generate an FCP XML of any metadata that belongs to that file or those files. Mm. I remember when they announced that, that was last year. Wasn't that last year, like around the Creative yep. Summit, that they announced that, right? That's correct. I, I found out about this because uh, one of their team members interrupted one of my sessions that was about collaboration to say, why don't you press that button in Frame.io? And I pressed that button in Frame.io and it uh, it blew my oh, mind. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, let's talk about live on stage. That's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. 
So what does the workflow architect do at Frame.io every day? Well, I'm essentially the art vandalay of the uh, <laughs> office. I spend my time uh, creating video content like I was doing at LumaForge, but it's educational content about mm-hmm. workflow, either using Frame.io or one of its partners or uh, sometimes just friends of the company. So first video I did was actually for Sony for their uh, Sony FX9 camera. So I'm still creating video content for filmmakers. But in addition, I'm working with partners of ours to help think up different ways that they can work with Frame.io to make really interesting workflows for our mutual customers. Mm-hmm. I'm also spending time, you know, on, on the product side, uh, giving feedback on certain things. So, uh, for example, you know, I might spend time, mm-hmm. <laughs> more time actually editing at the company than other people. So I might unearth bugs or certain workflow needs and be able mm-hmm. to articulate mm-hmm. those. But also, I don't know if you saw the press release, but Michael Cioni, mm-hmm. formerly of Panavision, formerly of LightIron, uh, recently joined the Frame.io team. And so he and I are working together to kind of think up some some other things that could potentially be done. That's so awesome. um, he's kind of got a new wing of the company that he's heading up and uh, I get to help out with that uh, to a certain degree. And so it's, it's a mix of those things. The term workflow architect is a little bit vague because it encapsulates like four or five different things, you know, because you know how to do so many things. Yeah. When Michael made the announcement recently, I'm thinking, okay, where's it going? It never occurred to me that it was Frame.io, but it's, I think it's a perfect marriage. He's a great guy. You And you guys, I think you guys are going to make some magic together. But, you know, before we go, I do want you to talk about in the middle of all of this, Patrick, you are very calm. You're always just do your work. And in the middle of all of this, you're editing a film, a feature film called Faith Base. Oh yeah, that's oh, yeah. right. That's right. By the way, (laughs) (laughs) oh, by the way, in my spare time, Uh (laughs) tell us about that film because who's in it? Jason Alexander and some other great people, right? Yeah, we got Jason Alexander, the original Art (laughs) Vandalay. We've got uh, Lance Reddick from the John Wick series Mm -hmm. and The Wire Mm -hmm. and uh, Bosch and many other things. I mean, he's been in a lot. We've got David Koechner of uh, Anchorman and The Office fame. Mm -hmm. Margaret Cho, the stand-up comedian, she's in it. We've got uh, Chris Marquette, famously, I think, from uh, other things, but my favorite movie that he's in is uh, Just Friends with Ryan Reynolds. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. but, But he was also in the latest season of Barry, and uh, has been in a number of other things over the years. We've also got Richard Reilly, uh, who, oh my gosh, his credits are innumerable. Uh, but he was famously in Office Space as the Jump to Conclusions guy. Who else? We've got uh, Marlon Young. Jeez, what a cast. We've got Christoph So who's Sanders. directing this? The director is Vince Michelli. Uh, he... Uh, and his partner, Luke Barnett. Mm -hmm. Luke is one of the actors in the movie, actually, uh, but also the writer of the movie. He and Luke have a company called Lone Suspect, Mm -hmm. and uh, we worked together on a TV pilot they did back in 2017 Mm -hmm. called Captain Carl's Institute for the Abnormally Bizarre, starring (laughs) Daniel Stern, who is the voice of the the narrator in Wonder Years. He was in um, Home Alone as one of the Sticky Bandits and uh, the taller of the two Sticky Bandits. And, oh, what's that movie with uh, Billy Crystal, and they're out in the Dude Ranch uh, City Slickers. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. Anyway, wow. so I'd done that project with them back in 2017. Um, but, uh, yeah, Vince has also done a movie called fear Inc, which is quickly becoming a cult classic horror film. If you go onto iTunes, it's currently 99 cents to rent for the month of October. That's great. So uh, yeah, Vince is a great guy. Um, and his wife, Krista actually was, uh, my boss at Luma Forge. I love that. (laughs) So that was, that was kind of an interesting, um, uh, turn of events, you know, I worked with him on Captain Carl's and then she presented at the Faster Together stage and then became my boss. And then I edited his feature film and then I went to Frame I.O. So <laughs> that's kind of how those events turned out. You have been for many years and still are an example of somebody who builds relationships and is a team player and it's well-liked by everyone who works with you. And when people ask me what's important, you know, how do I, how do I keep my job? I, okay, I've got this job. What do I do to keep it? And I always tell them, just be, be a team player, do the very best job you can be a team player. Think about what the people around you need and treat it like family, because it really is, you know, you alluded to our behind the scenes tech family. And it's really true. There is a core group of us who kind of, I don't know, we just travel together. You know, the people that are building the tech that I admire so much, people that are using it, people that want to use it. And, uh, we're all we're all friends behind the scenes, and that's that's yeah, really wonderful. I think we all travel in packs, don't we? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's kind of funny. I, I don't remember if it was Philip or Greg or someone else in our group, but they started to call the Final Cut Creative Summit a Final Cut Family Reunion. But it's so true. Mm-hmm. You know, the same group end up at all sorts of events, whether it's Final Cut or Premiere or whatever. Mm-hmm. But if we we end up traveling in that pack and. I've seen you and Philip and Greg and uh, the team at Rampant Design and the the team at uh, Cormel. Mm-hmm. You know, we just kind of run in, into each other and and you know grab drinks or uh, go hang out at uh, the nearest restaurant or or whatever. And uh, we really have gotten to know each other significantly better than than you'd expect for people who live in you know, diverse places. Well, and there's an aspect to it too, that's very, it's, it's enjoyable, but it's also important too, because when you are on assignment and you have to put a crew together, you don't have a chance to do it twice. Yeah, You have to. And that's why we tend to work with people we know, because we can trust that they're going to do the job. Right. And so these jobs, like the, the jobs that you've had in the last few years, it didn't happen to you overnight. No. You built relationships and you proved yourself every step of the way. You know, I call it this meteoric rise from mild-mannered assistant editor with a great attitude and good knowledge of tech to a full-blast editor. I know I'm embarrassing you again. I love doing that. (laughs) Oh, it's very kind of you, Serena. I really appreciate. (laughs) But, you know, I really do appreciate, you know, over the the last number of years, you've checked in and, and... we're always, you know, very supportive, even even when I was, you know, just an assistant editor, <laughs> you know, uh, on nothing of note at the, at the time. And, you know, I don't know that I would call where I am a meteoric rise. I, I appreciate the notion, but <laughs> I, it really does come down to knowing people who help each other out. I mean, really, that's how I am here mm-hmm. is because I'm going to make this as fast as possible. The uh, a woman whose daughter I knew in high school, I met through, I, I met this woman 
through working at an Apple store. I knew her daughter in high school. Her daughter had died between the time uh, that I'd been in high school and when I met this woman. So we kind of bonded over the mutual uh, loss of of her daughter. Obviously, it was a much larger loss for her than for me, but, you know, it was a friend. Yeah, yeah. And then when she found out I was moving to Los Angeles, introduced me to the brother of her son-in-law, who happened to maybe right at about a year after I moved out here, introduced me to uh, my first job uh, at a creative firm, actually as a full-time editor. But he also was the one who pointed me towards Light Irons Outpost University, which mm-hmm. is where I met Michael Cioni mm-hmm. back in 2012. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I got to know Michael slowly over you know seven years before we finally started working together. But Sam's introducing me to that job, introduced me to uh, eventually Michael Matzdorf and Michael Matzdorf is the one who got me the job on the OJ series. The OJ series ended up leading to, uh, my job at 1895 and also later to my job at LumaForge and my job at LumaForge led me to get to know Emory, which led to my job at Framio. So (laughs) ultimately it was a path that I could not have carved myself, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, not to go on and on about this, but I do think that there must have been some sort of higher power involved in this somehow. Absolutely. But there's also, you know, clear signs that getting to to know people and having a genuine interest in them as human beings and being a good person to work with and working hard at your job uh, does pay off over time. And uh, what what Serena is that saying about luck? Luck is opportunity meeting preparation, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. If you aren't prepared, then when opportunity arises, you know, then uh, luck doesn't happen, I suppose. Yeah, you get the see um, you later. <laughs> I, yeah, we, we never have control over the opportunity. The opportunity is something that's always out of our hands, mm-hmm. but we always have, always, always, always have control over the amount of preparation that we put into something. Yeah. So the, uh, the faith-based film, do they know where that's going to be distributed yet, or you're just in post on it? Where is it? So post is largely done Mm -hmm. with any independent film while you're still in the search for a sales agent and distributor and all that sort of a thing. There's still things that could be changed later on. You know, once the distributor comes on, Mm -hmm. they may say, Hey, we need you to change this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. So we're currently, I've been on hold on that uh, for the last month or so as it's being passed out to uh, sales agents, you know, for them to review and determine Mm -hmm. whether or not they're going to take it on. And then they'll, you know, take it to distributors from there. So right now distribution's not lined up, but um, we'll see. It'll happen. I mean, I I mean, you're familiar with that process, I'm sure. um, It'll happen. Working on Chianti's story, you know, finding that, although you have done quite a bit of work uh, for, what, like National Geographic and uh, other people that the distribution was kind of already built into the project. I think what helped me the most learning about distribution and marketing of films was my tenure at the studios. That was very fortunate for me. I always wanted to work in production. And when I first moved to L.A., the only job available, there was a big actor strike. And it was right when MGM and UA had merged after Heaven's Gate. And so the only job Mm -hmm. available Mm -hmm. was in publicity. And then I moved from there into marketing. But over the years, and then at the new UA, 
worked for a distributor. So I learned a lot about that. But the business has really changed in, in the last, I would say, 15, 20 years. The business of marketing and distributing has changed an awful lot. Yeah. I want to interview the team and you on Faith-Based. And so we can go under the hood a little bit more on that. Sure. But I, but I want to ask you, what what is... Uh, What's on your bucket list that you haven't done that you really want to do? Do you have a secret wish that I can sort of put out there into the universe for you? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, Serena. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, that's a good question. I'm really excited for getting to work with uh, Michael Cioni on some of the initiatives that we've got going on Mm -hmm. uh, at Frame.io. I'm really excited to see where that goes. I really am looking forward to faith-based getting distribution, and I really look forward to continuing to do films with my friends, mm-hmm. you know, and doing high-quality work with my friends and uh, doing stuff that makes us all laugh. Like the amount of time, Serena, that uh, Vince and I spent in the edit bay uh, cracking up at jokes from set, <laughs> even, you know, the 75th time we'd seen them was there's there's something rich and endearing about that process. I don't know that I would ever want to go edit things for people who aren't friends or again, just because it's it's already a stressful process uh, unto itself. But when mm-hmm. you are working with people that you know that you enjoy and that you know that you uh, can spend twenty four seven twenty four seven yeah, almost almost. If, if you can find those people that you, you're willing to spend that sort of time with, then the process actually becomes enjoyable and fun. Yeah. I have worked on projects where, you know, not knowing the people going in, sometimes sometimes they ended up being great, amazing people that you enjoyed working for, and sometimes they didn't. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm going to be taking on side work while working full-time at Frame.io, it better be with people that I like spending all the free hours of my evening and weekend with. <laughs> so speaking of people that we like, we're both going to be, and a lot of our friends are going to be at the Creative Summit in November. You're giving a couple of talks. I am. Tell us what those talks are going to be. Uh, well, the first talk on Thursday evening is going to be about uh, mixing for both stereo and surround sound inside of Monica Pro 10. And I'm going to talk about how with Faith Based, actually, we were able to take a stereo mix and turn it into a surround sound mm-hmm. mix in about five minutes. Wow. Very <laughs> cool. And that's the mix we played in our first uh, preview at a theater in Hollywood at uh, Red Studios. So nice. <laughs> we, were able, we were able to turn that around pretty quickly. So I'll be talking about that on Thursday night and then Friday morning. Uh, Vince, the director, he and I will be presenting on basically our camera through the cutting room process on faith-based. Oh, that's great. Um, including oh. a number of workflow tricks that we learned along the way uh, and some workflow tricks that we brought from what we'd done on Captain Carl's. And, uh, you know, there was also a piece of software called Post Lab that we got to use that we'd never used before that uh, enables multiple people in multiple physical locations to collaborate inside of Final Cut Pro 10. Oh, so, I've not used that. I have to try that. Well, this is awesome. Yeah. I guess I will see you next at the Creative Summit. Well, no, I'm going to I'm going to try to go to Lapsy Pug on the 23rd. This is probably going oh to air God. after Lapsy Pug, though. Um, I'm going to try to get in just to see everybody, but I will definitely see you at the Creative Summit. Definitely at the Creative Summit. And I'm still 
your biggest fan and I'm following you. And I just so happy that we met. Keep up the good work and keep encouraging other people and and just being a bright light for so many other people. And I know you're, you've been working really hard and it was, uh, it was nice of you to take time out of your day to do this today. Absolutely, Serena. We'll talk again really soon. I'm so proud of you. Keep it up. <laughs> Thank you, Serena. And I'm ha- happy to, you know, talk to you on, on any platform at any time. You're you're a good friend and, and been a, a good mentor and, <laughs> and uh, support over the last few years. So I really appreciate your time. This is Serena Catani with OWC Radio. I've been speaking with Patrick Southern, workflow architect at Frame.io and an editor that I've been following for many years. I encourage all of you to go to owcradio.com. If you like what you're hearing on these interviews, please subscribe, tell your friends about us, and definitely go to maxsales.com and show our sponsor, OWC, how great they are by taking a look at what's available to you there. And you know what I tell you guys every week? Get up off your chair and go do something wonderful today. Take care and thanks for listening.